something beside me A light to the kerosene And the places aren't real anymore And the faces don't say anything Welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good. To get early access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. This episode is available to everyone courtesy of the new documentary film series, Four Died Trying, which premiered on November 22nd on Apple TV and other streaming services. You can now buy the Four Died Trying prologue on Amazon as well. Four Died Trying explores the extraordinary lives and calamitous deaths of President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Robert F. Kennedy. The next chapter should be available around New Year's Day, I am told. Today, Bryce and I are joined by Patrick Lawrence. A commentator, author, essayist, and lecturer, Patrick Lawrence has served as a correspondent and subsequently a columnist overseas for more than 20 years, chiefly for the International Herald Tribune and The New Yorker. He has won two Overseas Press Club awards, as well as other honors and prizes. His work has appeared in a wide variety of publications, including The Nation, The New York Times, Business Week, Time, Salon, and Counterpunch. Lawrence currently writes at The Flautist on Substack, and these columns are often carried by Consortium News and Shearpost. Patrick Lawrence is the author of several books, including Time No Longer and his latest book, Journalists and Their Shadows, which I discussed with Patrick in a recent American Exception podcast episode. So check the show notes for links to his Substack and to his book. Patrick Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, a pleasure, as always, Aaron. And good to meet you, Bryce. Wonderful. Good to meet you as well. Now, you were able to fill in for us on short notice because Scott Ritter postponed, and I had already been stewing in my mind, although you didn't know this, but I'd wanted to ask you back to have a discussion about current events and also Empire and Chalmers Johnson's take on it because he mm -hmm. seems prophetic in some ways, and it's a fascinating subject. So I'm so thankful that you were able to fill in here on short notice. Uh, and I want you to know that this will be publicly available on the Fordide Trying website, and I want to talk... I want to ask you a little bit about the, uh, the, the subject of the mm -hmm. documentary series here as we start. Uh, this film series, in part the director, like, I'm in a strange position as a to do publicity for anything, you know, it's not my natural uh, inclination. But mm -hmm. on this, this film project, John Kirby has said, these are state crimes against democracy and, and it's a film has never put these together. Now, State Crimes Against Democracy, he's referring to the work of Lance DeHaven Smith, who was my mentor, my dear friend. He was a kind of intellectual father figure to me, really, and he just died recently. Uh, and so uh, I feel really fortunate to be at all connected to this project because uh, it's just these things shouldn't be looked at separately. Oh, one guy died and then another guy, and isn't that strange? This, in retrospect, we see this is really part of the empire and the way that it you know, 
they basically won't accept defeat. If they're going to lose through democracy, then they'll just kill people. Um, as you've had, you've lived through some of these events, and as time has gone by, and you, what do you think of the 60s and those assassinations and their connection to the current terrible state of the U.S. empire? What are your thoughts on this as someone who's steeped in, in this history? You know, uh, uh, the first thing I think is we don't think enough about it, right? Uh, we think about the 60s and the counterculture and all that kind of thing, the anti-war movement, that's fine. Um, but we don't really think about the 60s as a quite a pivotal moment in, in American history. Maybe I should go back a little bit. Um, we had another pivotal moment uh, in the late 40s, um, in, the, in the 40s when, um, when Henry Wallace was going to be nominated uh, to succeed uh, FDR and uh, the Democratic machine uh, tipped him out of bed and put Truman in. Uh, you know, I, I assume your readers know a little bit about what Henry Wallace stood for. Um, what did he call it? The, the century of the common man, you know, instead of the American century, Henry Luce's dreadful thought. Um, and so that was kind of a turning point. But, I, I, you know, the, let's go forward now. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the Kennedys are a complicated pair of brothers. Um, uh, as I wrote in a recent column, what did I call it? Uh, what died in 1963? Uh, uh, you know, they came to office with a, uh, a certain set of somewhat orthodox ideas. They were cold warriors and so on. Uh, uh, but um, they, the scholars might think I'm oversimplifying or may even disagree. Uh, but I, so far as I know, they are, are, can discern, they evolved very critically in the course of Kennedy's three years and um, uh, came to represent a, a, a real promise for this country to make a turn such as the one that Americans missed when Wallace was shoved to the side, right? That's why I mentioned Wallace earlier, right? Uh, toward what? Toward uh, a, a new way of presenting ourselves to the world, toward uh, a notion of common, of shared interests and uh, you know, a, a constructive country and not a destructive country, uh, not leading with the military, uh, etc. You know, uh, and on the domestic side, I I think we we may have been headed for some peculiarly American form of social democracy, if such a thing is conceivable. But in any event, an authentic turn in a new direction. Uh, and we lost that. We lost it. Uh, we lost it 60 years ago. And um, uh, we are, we've been hurtling more or less in the opposite direction ever since. Uh, that's how I read the 60s, you know. Uh, all four of those men uh, 
evolved in the course of their careers as as public figures. The two Kennedys, King, Malcolm X, uh, you know, uh, uh, and they all were poised, if not already beginning to make a great deal of difference in the kind of country America was in the way we treat ourselves and the way we conduct ourselves abroad. Uh, and to me, that's the, that's the tragic loss. You know, it really, it's a, the greatest loss in my lifetime uh, uh, by way of uh, lost potential, lost opportunity, that kind of thing. That's, these are my thoughts. Right. I mean, I didn't live through them, but having spent a good bit of time studying them and, and looking at how remarkably different that these men and their ideas were from the leaders and the ideas that circulate today, um, it, it's just really sobering to look at them uh, and what they were trying to do. And in the way that this dark force just vetoed, exercised a veto power, mm. uh, in a sense, it's a, uh, it's really the essence of, of fascism, but we we're, we're unable to look at it. That's that to me is this, it, it gets into what we're talking about today, which is the way of the power and, and some of the themes of some of your recent articles, the way that power can just render us incapable of articulating what is being done to us and what is happening. Yeah. yeah. I mean, did uh, when I published that column, you know, you get comment threads. Uh, some of my comments, commenters, said, actually, what we lost at that moment was our political process. Well, fair comment, you know. Uh, 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 if not the, the essence of our democracy, uh, I count November 2263 a, a, a straight-out coup, right? And yeah. obviously not bloodless, you know. Um, and you know, the, one of the stranger accidents of this is that of the people that were around at the time, one of the only people to say, this is a whole new form of government and it's going to be horrible and we're not going to, I'm not going to be alive to see it. Uh, those, that was what Jack Ruby said uh, at one point when he was being questioned really? by Earl Warren. He's being questioned by Earl Warren and he's asking to be taken to Washington, D.C. because he says his life is in danger. And uh, he says that at the time. And uh, who knows if he, what. If you know, Aaron. The, the Ruby case is very uh, strange, full of, yeah. full of weird things like that. Yeah. Hmm. I. I learned from your book, Aaron, that uh, if you didn't say it, you certainly prompted the thought in my mind. That was the moment when the national security state declared that it was in charge. You know, maybe yeah. Bryce agrees with that, right? Uh, uh, no, I, I fully do. Uh, you know, part of being uh, on the American left is learning about, you know, the various uh, histories of military interventions and coups and, uh, you know, CIA overthrows and things like that. Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't really get tossed into this, to that, to that bowl is the, the coup that happened in America. Uh, you know, we don't talk about how the national security state brought a lot of the tactics and mindsets that it uses abroad uh, here at home. I know someone like Douglas Valentine talks a lot about how the Phoenix program was an example uh, of one of those uh, external uh, projects that was then brought home and put on the domestic level. And that mm -hmm. seems to be what happened with this, uh, with the assassinations. Yeah. 
Four that's what Malcolm X said. I mean, that's exactly what he said. That's what got him kicked out of, or not, it got him a punishment from Elijah Muhammad. Uh, yeah. You know, peace be on him. But and you know, the chickens can't were coming home to roost. It was so succinct. The, the funny thing about living through them, I was 13 when JFK was killed, 18 when uh, King, and 15 when Malcolm was killed, 18 when King and Bobby were killed. At the time, people were not encouraged, and I don't think many people really did, put them together as a as a sequential set of events. There was not any understanding. I mean, at, at that time, the, the, the working understanding was still quite unshakable. Uh, uh, America is a great country. Bad things don't happen here. These are, these are a, a strange set of uh, anomalies, you know, in no the way only time who we were, right? The, the only time I had heard that these assassinations, like b before I had, a, you know, the proper education of, you know, the deeper side of history. But the only time I had heard that these assassinations were linked in any way was strangely in a conversation about gun control and how uh, people saw that these assassinations kept happening and that guns were the central cause. And so that maybe that's a good case to try and get guns off the street. That was the only, uh, you know, that was the only time I had heard them linked together in any way. <laughs> it's pretty bizarre. In other countries, you know, you can talk about the darker sides of their history. You can talk about how, you know, General Watch's face overthrew President Watch's face. You can talk yeah. about how, uh, you know, there was a coup, uh, but, you know, there was a counter coup and we got over it. You can't have the, that history here uh, because it threatens the integrity of the whole system if we say that it happened. If we say yeah. that there was an illegitimate transfer of power that was subsequently legitimized by time, if nothing else, well, that undermines the entire myth that the current political yeah. order is based on. And so yeah. we can't we can't talk about it. Yeah, they did similar things. for. If you look at the New York Times, and I think it was in the 90s, they wrote an article about the exhumation of Zachary Taylor. And, and Michael Parenti has a good chapter on this. The exhumation and the details around it, the forensic details, do not eliminate the cause, uh, the, the possibility of arsenic poisoning. In fact, they kind of point to it. But even then, the, the New York Times, when they wrote about it and this group that was there to study this, they wanted to basically misrepresent the, the situation in order to somehow maintain the, that, that Zachary Taylor died of uh, natural causes of gastroenteritis that just came on for no reason. I mean, th so this is like they don't they'll go back 100 years. They'll they'll be they'll and, the, and in this case, they're basically defending like the Confederacy or what became the Confederacy, you know, because the accusation is that it was the slave power that did this because they wanted the compromise of 1850 to pass, which the vice president yeah. supported and the president didn't. So but even then, they're even then the times when like they're invested in 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 Made the making the argument that it just can't that just can't happen in America, and we'll we'll distort the facts to make it fit that you know that that prime directive. They they're masters of obfuscation over yes. there on Eighth Avenue. <laughs> yes, and I, I want to talk now about some of your more recent articles because people should follow your work at the Substack, um, the Flautist now. 
Um, and this one is uh, is called Fugitive Virtue. I want to read a, a passage from it because this issue of just being able to dictate reality on high from on high, this is, this is really the heart of some of our, many of our problems. The creep of censorship against independent non-corporate media has been evident in the U.S. since the days of the Russiagate hoax, 2016 to 2020. But the IDF's genocide operation in Gaza has intensified the liberal authoritarians' attacks on dissident reporting, commentary, and free speech altogether. There are two reasons for this. One, the Israel's that the Israelis' racist savagery is so openly and obviously offensive to the most basic human values that it requires maximum effort to stifle objections to it. Two, the charge of anti-Semitism, dangerous, life-threatening anti-Semitism, makes excellent cover for those who think free speech is an antiquarian notion we must now dispense with. So I think this is a, these are important points. How do you, how do you see this playing out where censorship is so antithetical to what we're, we pretend to stand for and what's being done in Israel and in Palestine is so brazenly criminal and murderous that they can't really hide it. I mean, where do you see this? Where do you see this going? Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm not the first to use the figure of speech. Uh, the, the power cliques in, in this country have no reverse gear. Right. Uh, that becomes a problem time and time again. They can't get out of Ukraine. They've made a complete mess in Ukraine. There's no way they're going to win that one, but they can't get out of it. Right. Uh, and and in this case, in, in the Gaza case, uh, well, let, let's start a little earlier. Uh, Russiagate was just a, a, mon a monumental farce. Right. Uh, uh, everyone was screaming about conspiracy theorists, but the people screaming loudest were, were, were running the most, the mother of all conspiracy theories, right? Uh, it, it became completely ridiculous, but they, and I kept wondering at the time, how are these people gonna get out of this radical overinvestment? And they did it the way I kind of suspected they would. They slithered out the side door quietly, right? Uh, um, in, in the case of, in, in the way more important case of, of uh, Israel and Gaza, um, it, it looks to me like the cliques in Washington thought, uh, and not without cause, uh, in their experience, they can sell Americans pretty much anything. Uh, they thought they could sell this barbarity to Americans and it would it would go down perhaps with some difficulty, but they would get it done. Well, they're not getting it done. Uh, and and the, the, the monstrousness of, of the whole thing uh, has, has left them very overexposed. Uh, we three and all your viewers probably, you know, know the statistics about how many people buy into this stuff and how and how many object right uh they're trying to control the universities now they're the, the media they don't even have to make an effort to control right uh um so they've overinvested again and it's it's just this time it's just too awful to sell so what what are they going to do they're going to they're going to escalate uh and i i, I think that's 
that's where it's going uh, for the time being. I, I, I think it's probably going to remain as bad as it is. It censorship and wild accusations of anti-Semitism. You know, if if a Jewish person stubs his toe, it's an it's an anti-Semitic incident at this point, right? Uh, and um, I, I think there are signs of serious concern here. Uh, I was just discussing last night. Uh, um, why are they going after the universities? Well, my, my wife suggested the statistics about 18 to 25-year-olds and 25 to 34s, um, their sympathies with the Palestinians are over half, right, uh, as measured by various polls. So what we have here is a a, a, a generational shift, subtle, you know, not overnight, but uh, slowly, you know, the, the 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 memories of the Holocaust and everything that's been drilled into us, uh, uh, these things are not to be forgotten. But um, th the reality of the Palest Palestinian uh, predicament is way more real to younger people than it is to older people. And so I think there's a lot of worry. How's that going to be countered? Uh, you know, I, the censorship machine is is very powerful. Um, the only defense we have is our, our occasions like this, or one of the important defenses against this, are our independent media. We have to keep on keeping on, you know. But it's a war at this point. It's, it's a real war. The monopoly um, that... Uh, corporate media uh, enjoyed for how long do we want to go back in history? Uh, new technologies are are breaking up that monopoly, uh, uh, making uh, making a, a great diversity of thought uh, possible and available to people, uh, and so there's a fight, right? And we we have to keep our keep ourselves going you know um but i don't i don't have a rosy picture to convey at this point uh, i wonder what you two think and i i totally agree i mean uh, uh like i said i'm here at a university right now i'm a graduate student and I, i'm working with the uh, the school's palestine solidarity group um uh, which you know i helped found when i was an undergrad to try and fight against that uh you know, that overwhelming hegemonic pro-Israel narrative that most people grow up with and, uh, you know, that, that never really challenged in a serious way, even for educated people. Mm. Uh, but even now we're seeing like some pushback against us. I mean, just recently we learned that our faculty advisor um, is being suspended from teaching and suspended from wow. uh, uh, advising any student organizations. And uh, the ostensible reason for this was uh, that he filled out a form wrong for our group to have a, an event. And they're saying that he, by uh, this event got canceled by the university, but the organization went forward with the event. And they're saying that he didn't adv advise us properly. Uh, and so they're suspending him. Uh, and, you know, the, the this event was obviously a... An, a pro-Palestine event. We had Miko Peled uh, at the school, uh, but we just learned recently that he's being suspended. 
So they're they're coming after people in serious ways. It's not as bad as you know Rutgers or Columbia where they banned the students for justice in Palestine. But that's only a matter of time. I mean, the, several different universities around the country have flat out banned Palestine solidarity groups. Uh, you know, you've written about the 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 ridiculous witch hunt, like Inquisition, that university presidents were subjected to in Congress, and it's not really about the facts of the case. It's not really about what they're actually saying. It's about sending a message to people uh, that, you know, you can, even if you're reasonable, even if you have God and the facts on your side, uh, we can put you through this ringer and uh, make your life a living hell just to raise the cost of doing that. And that's what we call free speech in this country. Yeah. Really well-reasoned. Yeah, this is, um, I mean, I, the only thing that I would say is more of a cause for optimism is, as Patrick points out, the younger generation is not buying this. And this has to be very alarming because they're losing that support. And in, in, and in the UN General Assembly, Jeffrey Sachs, I've heard him speak about this very lucidly uh, in, in recent weeks. And he pointed out that the, the on the U.S. side, you know, against any sort of ceasefire, uh, there was essentially 1% of uh, the global population was on the U.S. side. Like the vast majority of humanity is opposed to this slaughter. Most Americans want a ceasefire. The idea that, that by slaughtering these people uh, and carpet bombing whole neighborhoods like this and, and killing so many children, you know, leaving babies to die of exposure and dehydration, premature babies and in incubators like this. This is horrific. It is horrific. And it's it's a shock to the whole world. And the idea that like, oh, you have to accept this level of brutality because if you're not, you're somehow not protecting the human rights of Jews uh, who don't want, who are facing, you know, extermination or something from Hamas, which is so absurd to suggest yeah. that Hamas has the ability to do what they're claiming they have the ability to do. I mean, I feel that they are, that things are on the side. I think part of the reason that you see this aggressive, psychotic response from Israel is that they actually sense that be, Netanyahu himself as a leader, but also the eliminationist Zionist project, because of the decline of U.S. hegemony so dramatically, we see this in Ukraine, but, but elsewhere as well, uh, made, they feel that they perhaps don't have as much time and that they needed to liquidate this area or what, but what are they even when they, if they do this, U.S. hegemony is declining such that what are they going to be really presiding over in that area? I mean, I think that, as as Patrick said, they, and this is what C. Wright Mills said too about these crackpot realists, that they just like accept the, the, the dominant framework and they're just obsessed with the next frenzied step and the next frenzied step and they don't have the ability to course correct. Um, mm. And it's what's amazing and shows how powerful the U.S. was at the end of World War II, is that it's taken this long for this project to come as close to unraveling as it has. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, it's it's something. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about another one of your uh, articles here, um, art that because it's uh, something people should check out. So, uh, The Forced March into Immorality, the subtitle here, Our Humanity is Now on the Line. And you write that, we must recognize these daily events as part of a concerted, coordinated effort to protect Israel from judgment by the most basic standards of human conduct to redeem the irredeemable. This is to say, these whole-of-society campaigns effectively require citizens of the Western democracies, and we must not miss this, to surrender their morality, their decency, 
their consciousness of what it means to be human in the service of a barbarism with few equivalents in modern history. We are force marched, to put this point another way, into a state of either amorality or immorality, and at this moment I am not sure which is the intent. As Israelis behave barbarically, so are we required to become barbarians. To coerce people into such a state to outlaw independent thinking in favor of a degrading orthodoxy, does this suggest Western societies now turn toward a new variant of totalitarianism? I'm not one to use language irresponsibly, but with bitterness, I will pose the question. So are we, to what extent are we living in a totalitarian system? And then our inability to understand that is actually just a part of that totalitarianism. I, I don't think we're there yet. As I said in that piece, you know, words like totalitarianism, uh, fascism, you know, these, <clears throat> these, uh, these sort of terms have um, very specific meanings, right? Um, uh, and I think we should observe those meanings. I inflating language doesn't, doesn't strengthen one's case, in, in my view, right? I'm very happy to discuss the, the rise of liberal authoritarianism in America. And I don't think that's an inflated term at all, right? Uh, but to, to return to your question or to get there for the first time, uh, it, if you look at what this crisis, the Israel-Gaza crisis has done to the American polity, it's just shocking, right? Uh, uh, it's eating into our most basic institutions, our judicial system, our, our courts, our legislature um, are being corrupted with all this business. The, the House of Representatives is now uh, uh, casting itself as qualified to, to give diction, dictionary definitions of, of etc. You get the point, Zionism and all that, right? Uh, preposterous, right? The courts are weighing in. Um, I count universities. I know universities, and you know you're in one, Bryce, and and you're a what do I call you? Are a veteran Political or a scientist. survivor? <laughs> I mean, veteran or a survivor, right? Yeah. Anyway, a one recovering of the, academic, I think, is a term. A recovering, <laughs> right? Um, uh, you know, I setting aside the corporatization of higher education in this country, which is just an abominable phenomenon, right? But um, uh, setting that aside for a minute, you know, universities are, in my view, among the most basic sources of of any society's dynamism and and understanding of itself, and a source of, of a vision, a, a capability of looking forward, right? And we're destroying, you know, the, the Israel thing is 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 eating into, is destroying the integrity of our universities. This is, these are just cases of uh, uh, the extent to which this thing is, is ruining us, right? Uh, and I think the basic, I think the basic rub here for, for us, for Americans individually, okay, apart from institutionally, is the 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 imperative that we the implicit imperative we should all pay attention to what's being attempted 
the implicit imperative that we must abandon our morality, our decency, uh, you know, our personal standards, you know, uh, you know, it's not okay to kill other people. Well, uh, you know, uh, suddenly we're, we're invited to say, oh, yes, it is. Right? Um, I, I think this is really very grave. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Chaz Freeman you know, used a phrase recently, he did a long, he did a long segment for something called Un Open Source Radio. It was excellent. Uh, uh, that this is the hinge of history, right? And and I, I wrote about that. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think this is a real turning point for us uh, institutionally. Individually, we are called upon to, uh, to accept that our fundamental humanity and decency uh, are going to be, we are going to be deprived of them, or we have to make our voices heard, you know, and, and act. That's, that's our moment. Um, and uh, it's, to me, quite large. I mean, it's always difficult uh, for human beings to understand their moment, the present moment, uh, as as a passage in history, we can't we can't see ourselves as historical actors very easily. It doesn't come naturally. We have to make a real effort, right? Uh, we can understand. We can look at the past and say this is what happened in the Civil War and this is how people were. But to to understand our own moment as a passage in history is hard, but it's not impossible. And um, I, I I think we are in a very large, we are in a very large passage in, in the human story and in the American story. Uh, that's, that's where I come out on this totalitarian. Uh, we're in that direction. I can't, I can't deny that, but I don't think we're there yet. You know, I'm, I'm going by Hannah Arendt and others, you know, right. I've always I thought that that is I'll I'll quibble a little bit with the definitional issues here. I, I felt that totalitarianism and then Sheldon Wolin's take on how the U.S. was becoming an inverted kind of totalitarianism. Like yeah, a, good a, book. A situation right. where it's top down, but it's it's arrived at that by demobilizing the population by and large, which I think is is relevant. And I think in the bigger sense that a, a regime or a system is totalitarian. And this is more or less what Hannah Arendt said, if there's no element of civil society that can challenge like top-down rule, uh, more or less. And I think that a lot of what we do does conform to that. I mean, when you look at this, like looking at what is happening in Israel, the universities, the media, none, nobody is able to move the uh, regime at all. I mean, to me, the, the iconic uh, encapsulation of the U.S. policy is that one a pathetic UN representative who at the UN Security Council raises, you know, his corrupt little hand to veto a ceasefire so that they can go on slaughtering, you know, women and children in Gaza. It's, uh, it's, that is a, that is so top down. I and mean, you see like who can, who can persuade the head of state who can speak to the emperor. Aaron, Aaron, understood, understood entirely. 
Um, uh, but if again, I think we're in that direction. I, there's yeah. no question in my mind about it. But we we mustn't if we use that term to describe ourselves uh, prematurely or as a matter of overstatement, we deprive ourselves of those uh, of those features of of our society that remain available to us. Right. They aren't many and they're all under attack, but we three are talking now, you know, and not, but not impacting. I mean, this, I, I understand what you're saying and I agree with you that we, we must do this. What I think is going to bring this system down and the, and the extent that it is, you know, this disguised version of a uh, top down rule is that events are going to overtake them. I don't think that, uh, and, and this is where we're all, it, those of us who are paying attention are uh, aghast in a way in that it's horrifying, but it's also kind of exciting because I don't see that there's a, there's a better chance for a, a, a dramatic historical power shift than has been the case in the, uh, up to this point. And that is, uh, that is, uh, and at that point, what will the, the despotism look like or what recourse will they ha the despots have because the rest of the world is now changed do we have a lesson to learn from the soviet union when nothing ever changed and nothing was ever going to change and and bang That's, you know? this the, yeah what should we take from this or the british case people say that the british walked away from their empire and i don't think they really did that but this actually brings me to the other subject. That may, I, may, I I ask, may I ask answer your question just very briefly? Sure. Sorry to interrupt. What do we take from that? There's no such thing as stasis in 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 social or political terms. It's always a it's always there's always motion. Yes. It's which direction is the motion, and at what velocity and so forth. But, and I think that that lends itself to the analysis that uh, is a, is a, you know sort of empowering that we do have even if we can't affect the decisions at the top at this moment we can always work towards building institutions and organizations that can put pressure on any sort of governing structure uh, to the point where whenever there are shocks like there if there is a a Soviet Union moment in the in America if we do have a, a Gorbachev come out and call the whole thing off. Well then, there'll be something. There'll be something from the bottom that is able to shape the outcome of what comes next. In the Soviet yeah. Union, you know, they didn't have much. You know, they, it was you know tossed to the oligarchs. The oligarchs, you know, destroyed the economy, and uh, you know they had to rebuild from the ground up. It was a worse shock than you know the famine uh, under under Stalin. But mm -hmm. you know, if we are able to now utilize the opportunities that we have to build what we can when we can then when the, the next shock comes we'll be in at least a better position to defend ourselves and to maybe build something a little bit better than before this is the work of our time right uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna clear the top of the mountain but we have our quiet work to do building a foundation for what we would like to see come you know anyway we interrupted you aaron how rude of us i know this is uh this is all very relevant because i want to talk about our 
Well, he was your friend, and I knew him only uh, as, a, as a writer and a scholar, Chalmers Johnson. And he was writing right before the 9-11 wars started, but he was very prescient. Uh, and he wrote this trilogy of books beginning, I think that Blowback came out in 1999, Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American yeah. Empire. And then around 2003 or four, The Sorrows of Empire, Militarism, Secrecy, and the End of the Republic was published. And I believe that Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic, was published in 2006. And I do feel that Nemesis is the most is as relevant as any metaphor that we could employ right now. I mean, what does Nemesis look like? I think that probably Brzezinski was prophetic in the Grand Chessboard when he said the nightmare scenario would be um, a Russia, China, Iran um, counter hegemonic block that would be united by grievances against the United States. He called it the barbarians coming together. The barbarians, the barbarians are coming together and Israel is barbarously trying to, uh, you know, kill its way to safety. The U.S. is backing them. The U.S. went right up to the gate of the barbarians in Ukraine, as they, you know, barbarians in quotation marks. And all they did was get a, their, the Ukrainians slaughtered on a, on a massive scale. What, what do you think Chalmers Johnson would say if he were watching these, the events of the last few years, Patrick? Well, um, Chal, uh, you know, he was a very many dimension, multi-dimensional man. Um, I think the important thing he did with those, the trilogy, which actually didn't start as a trilogy. Uh, uh, it just looked like one and then call, they called it one, right? Uh, um, was to put the, con put the topic of empire in front of us such that it could not any longer be either denied or um, dismissed as frivolous or fringy, right? Uh, he made it possible to talk about empire in frank, honest, to the point terms, no cotton wool language, as I call it, right? Uh, let's just call it as it was, uh, I, I sometimes argue in columns, nomenclature is very important. If you want to understand something, name it properly first, and then you're on the way to understanding it. And Chow made it possible uh, in many ways uh, to talk in honest terms about who we are and what we are doing in the world and what we should call it. Right. Uh, I think, was it Caitlin Johnstone, somebody like that, uh, remarked uh, not long ago, it is, it is quite extraordinary that America can run an empire and most Americans can't even see it. That's a pretty big lump under the blanket, I would say. Right. Uh, uh, why? Because it's not named properly. Right. Uh, and Chow made that possible. I, I think he opened a lot of doors and a lot of minds. And to me, that's that's the importance of those three books. And it certainly counts a lot that they were written by a, a, a scholar with proven 
gravitas, uh, you know, uh, uh, a long, long record of responsible scholarship. That certainly counted, you know. Um, right. I mean, his work on the Ministry of International Trade Michi. and Industry, yeah. Mi MIDI, was Michi. legendary in comparative politics, and it was assigned, you know, in the when I was a graduate student, which was, you know, in the early 2000, two, starting in 2010. So he was really well established. But I took a security studies course, a graduate course, and the professor said, I, I mentioned something about Chalmers Johnson, and the professor said, yeah, he, he used to be a, a, a really respected scholar but now he's a joke and, and I, I would i would really like to talk to this guy now because he was just a you know kind of a cookie cutter individual i mean not a not a bad guy but just like the institution produces these guys right these yeah yeah guys. he was just a he was an automaton from what and it would be really interesting to see if he has come around to realize that like actually the joke is on him well, the joke is him i mean now yeah. these guys that make all of these arguments they're Anybody who's paying attention, they're revealed as, you know, frauds and, and just kind of uh, careerist clowns, I think, by yeah. the, 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 was, the whole system in the I, I was thinking uh, before, we, before we came on together, uh, because you had mentioned in a, in a, in a note uh, what generally what topics we would cover. So I was re reflecting on Chalmers' trajectory, right? Uh, and it occurred to me, I think maybe for the first time, that the Meaty book, remember when the Meaty book came out, we had Ezra Vogel, Japan is number one. And we had Edwin Reischauer, who was the, the cheerleader in chief for the Japanese miracle and happy nation of industrious little worker ants and so on and so forth, right? Uh, that was what it was sheer orientalism right uh, uh and that was the context of the meaty book and the meaty book actually took apart wait a minute this is actually how japan works it's an extremely precise machine uh uh it, with the distinction between bureaucracy and uh, corporate leadership practically invisible right uh the way the whole political economy worked chalmers tore that wide open that's that's the significance of the book if, if i'm not oversimplifying and it occurred to me while i was thinking about our conversation uh, uh before we started it was kind of uh you know if you have that in mind the, the trilogy is not that surprising right um uh you know it, 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 he was he was, by the time he stepped aside at uh, University of California, well along in this kind of thinking. I, I remember I, I wrote a Japan book myself. It came out in 97, I think, uh, a, a big one for me. Um, and Chalmers and Sheila were extremely generous with their advice and so on. They read each chapter as I produced it. And, you know, at one point I said, Chell, when do you get to say what you want? And without hesitation, he said, when you're 65, right? <laughs> I thought it was very funny. Um, and uh, uh, I, I think when he, when he stepped out of the academy uh, and started writing the 
trilogy, and they were not the only things he wrote, right? He wrote quite a lot about Okinawa um, and a lot of art, a lot of periodical stuff, right? Um, Harper's American Prospect, what have you, right? Uh, you know, I, I just think he kind of stepped out of the the academic orthodoxy and people still in it, dependent upon it. That's what you're going to get. Uh, I, I don't imagine I'm surprising you, Aaron, and maybe not you either, Bryce. Uh, that's what you're going to get from these people. You just have to accept it. I get the same thing from mainstream journalists still functioning in the mainstream, right? I've lost a lot of friends since I said goodbye to all that, right? Uh, it's not permissible. As LBJ right. said, you're either inside the tent urinating out or outside the tent urinating in, right? Uh, uh, and it's not, ex if, if, you, if you step outside the tent, people can't, a lot of people just can't handle it. <coughs> and I think that's what happened to Chow. <coughs> right, I mean, he wrote very interesting things about Japan that were more in the realm of what I would write at the end of, uh, to, near the end of his life. He wrote this great review in the London Review of Books of Sterling Seagrave's book, Gold Warriors. And, and he also wrote this art, a journal article where, that he co-wrote with um, Norbert Schley and, uh, and someone else, but it was about the M Fund and all of that money. And <coughs> really what he was pointing out was what really one of, one of the unreported, unknown scandals lost to history which was the U.S. seizure of looted Japanese gold and the way that that money was used to set up slush funds, including funds which basically bankrolled the LDP, which has ruled Japan as a one-party state. And he's, a, he was the, he's the authority on Japan and the inner workings of the, the political economy of, of yeah. the Japanese state, which, as you point out, when you understand that he dispassionately looked at the political economy of Japan and explained it when nobody else was able to put it together for whatever reason, it does make sense that that's what he would do with the U.S. case. And then he takes that knowledge and I think he applies it to the darker aspects of what has been happening to Japan because Japan was is essentially a CIA uh, creation. I mean, the, the LDP is a, was established with a huge slush fund set up by uh, with stolen loot from Yoshio Kadama, who was a Yakuza gangster and an admiral in the Navy later. And he should have been executed, but they, they, the CIA springs him from jail and he takes this huge slush fund and sets up the LDP. And the slush fund is like looted uh, material from China and other countries in Asia. So the, yeah. the, the, that's a hit, the, the people of Japan don't know, and the Americans don't understand this history. We don't, it's like a great microcosm of just how corrupt the whole enterprise is. Like the whole yeah. Japanese state has been a one party state. And that one party was created by a gangster who should have been hanged, uh, but it wasn't because the CIA intervened. It's astounding. And it's, uh, it's something of a template for how <coughs> uh, America was going to run the world after the 1945 victories, right? Democracy, well, you point this out in your book, Aaron, democracy had very little to do with the project, right? Uh, the project was power. Um, and uh, in, in many ways, what, what we did in Japan 
uh, is what we were going to do variations on the theme all over the place all over asia um you know the middle east etc etc right right and i i did have some gripes with with chalmers johnson i i uh, which i'll i'll tell you and you can tell me if you think these make sense or not i he's he was a very smart man and an iconoclast which means he cannot but have something of an ego uh which i think at some points comes across uh when he would he's kind of dismissive of uh of certain critiques beyond a certain point so there's but but i say this with a with great admiration for the guy in general i feel the way that he approaches china that there's a little bit of a kind of orientalism in his kind of disdain for uh the, what the chinese communists were trying to do i essentially feel like give it that history of, of china and what they went through with uh the opium wars and the boxer uprising and the huge penalties attached to that and uh, then japan brutalizing them killing maybe 20 maybe 30 million people it's hard to even know that is a situation that a westerner i don't i don't feel you can really judge too much what the mistakes and other things that they did because we just don't have a, we don't have the context to do that yeah. and so i his he on the one hand he does predict that they're going to become a superpower that the us will contend with so he's prescient there but I feel like he has a little bit, I guess he has a little bit of anti-communism that he can't quite see it himself uh, at times. I, I suppose vestiges, you know, um, earlier, earlier in his career and maybe in, even into mid-career, um, he was never agency, but he cooperated with the agency by way of... He says, he says, I was a spear carrier for empire. He writes that at yeah. one point. Yeah, yeah, and there's a, there's a, you know, you get the, you get this in people of, uh, of Chalmers' kind, uh, a kind of, I want to be careful of the word, but something like a, a penitence, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, regret. I, I, I had it wrong. Um, I, I don't know whether I am remiss in suggesting another example, but there's a little, I, I find a little bit of that in Ray McGovern, for example, you know, um, a little bit of it in Oliver Stone, you know, uh, um, people, people came out of, came into adulthood with, with a certain set of ideas and then a crude expression, but you know, the light bulb went on at a certain point and probably not suddenly, but gradually. And um, they, be, they, they began to realize, whoa, I was wrong. We've been reading about Dorothy Thompson lately, one of the great journalists of the 20th century, right? Uh, who was uh, early uh, in the 30s, a very strong advocate of the, the Jewish cause, indeed the Zionist cause. Uh, and then after the war, she went to Palestine to see what was going on there. And she witnessed the early terrorist attacks that Zionists were mounting against the British. And she witnessed the early 
the brutality against the Palestinians, right? And she she shifted very very dramatically. Um, and in uh, in 1950, uh, wrote an article in Commentary, which was a very different sort of magazine at the time. Um, uh, very critical of Zionism. They that extinguished her career, right? Uh, the, the, the Jewish lobby, such as it was then, came after her big time. Uh, and she was, she had a very, very hard time publishing after that. What, uh, year, was, what year was the, the essay? The piece was, I believe it was 1950, and I think you can find it online uh, without a great deal of difficulty. We've been wondering about reproducing it uh, at the flautist, it's really remarkable. What I like about it is what's going on now. It has a long, long history and it's useful to remind people of this history. This has been going on the Jewish lobby, APAC and all that. And it's been going on since Israel has never existed without this kind of propaganda protection, not for a day. It was, it was there immediately. Right. Uh, um, uh, but we we've been wondering about reproducing it, but my my thought is that we would have to have permission from commentary, um, and commentary when they published Dorothy Thompson was you know it was a Jewish magazine, but it was you know it was it, it was intellectually engaged uh, uh, and open to different opinions. Commentary now is not that way uh, and I'm, I I said to Kara last night well we can ask them but my my hunch is they would never let us reproduce that that's the last damn thing they want out there right now <laughs> yeah that would seem to be that but anyway I, I recommend it to your your viewers Dorothy Thompson 1950 I can't remember the headline something to do with Zionism right and so this takes, I mean, this is a person who had to confront serious orthodoxies like, like Chalmers Johnson was doing, and he details so many episodes or aspects of it that are, that I, I think the significance of it is lost to me in a way because I'm so steeped in all of it that it's all stuff that I've like kind of studied separately from his writing about it. But as an academic or a mainstream, basically a mainstream academic, he was laying this all out really systematically. And he did, and he did confront his old kind of conventional Cold War liberal point of view. Uh, and Greatly made a lot of, Greatly made a lot, Yes, and, and made much progress. I think um, he doesn't, there are, there are some issues where he seems to contradict himself. He talks about the imperial presidency, and then he talks about the Praetorian Guard and how they kind of became a thing of their own. And he never really reconciles those two ideas and those two critiques. Because at times he says, oh, the CIA, he does what Schlesinger does, which is a strange thing, because Schlesinger himself, he wrote the imperial presidency, okay, even as he also regretted at the end of his life, he said his big regret was that he never wrote this book about the CIA. And he always believed the CIA had killed his hero, President Kennedy. But because he was such an establishment fellow, he could never really come out and say it. It was always like, Oh, maybe I don't know what happened. You know, like just kind of a sad nerd in that in that yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, and and jo and Chalmers Johnson is not a, from a totally different point of view. 
but on this issue of what is how do we look at the autonomy of these entities and 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 he and their wall street benefactors i think that that is one thing that he really missed was the fact that it was really wall street it was the private sector that did this i think his political the political scientist in him and, and his cold war background made him that was the one place that he couldn't go with his i mean he did talk yeah. about corporate greed but it was always as intertwined with <coughs> the state and it, with the implication that it was the government in the driver's seat and then opportunist profiteers not it's a it, that aspect is missing i think from his work the uh i think i i don't know how to name this but um i think there was a basic shift in in charles uh sort of mo right during the during the early years he wrote the book on the chinese revolution and then he wrote meet the and so forth he was functioning as a scholar um when he wrote the trilogy, he was functioning as, what's my word, uh, you know, uh, a commentator. Uh, 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 he was kind a of polemicist. A, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he wasn't purporting scholarly granularity or anything, right? So, but he, but I, he it was, it, he was a sagacious kind. It was like a scholar sage sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think uh, I think I understand what you're what you're saying. It, it was very scholarly and very meticulous, but it wasn't done in the narrow confines of like what political science produces. Yeah, I mean, he sucks, wasn't which, into footnotes. what it produces sucks. So more is the better that he chose that route. You know, he wasn't going to write a footnoted text right now. Uh, he, it was more like a, he was advancing a a perspective on America and America's place in the world <clears throat> more than more than a, a scholarly investigation of of those same topics, you know. But I think that's where the power of those books comes from. They're quite approachable. You know? Right. And I I think something else which I think was a blind is a was a blind spot for him and I think it was a blind spot for me is the extent to which post-Cold War foreign policy may have been driven more by Israel and, and the Zionist lobby uh, than and just Zionism as a force in general than people wanted to yeah. acknowledge or wanted to accept because as I think back on it so the U.S. Uh, and, the, and what I would think of as the U.S. deep state, the U.S. establishment, that oligarchic force that creates the conventional wisdom of the empire, that's typically like the... Uh, sort of encapsulation of, of business interests and business logic and realist kind of economic logic. And the U.S. Is not, has not operated according to that logic. This hmm. is something that has to be explained is why in realist terms have, has the U.S. embarked on such stupid things in the Cold War. And, you know, I had Lawrence Wilkerson on here and he was saying that he thinks that the reason Bush lost in 92 was that he stood up to Israel basically over the two-state solution for a moment. Interesting. And that, and uh, as I think about it, and how Bush could claim to have ended the Cold War with some credibility, I mean, it, it's much more complicated than that. And he, and it looked that he had won the Gulf War in a triumphant way at the time, which is complicated. But set that aside, how did he lose as an incumbent? And then you look at the other things the U.S. was doing it, it, after 9/11, and like they are bad policies. Like it was foolish to invade Iraq. It was foolish to try to occupy Afghanistan. It was foolish to launch those Arab Spring wars. Mm -hmm. But they and and then you look at these other conflicts that have been around Somalia 
and Yemen in recent years. And then you think like, well, what is the influence of, uh, you know, the U.S. support for Zionism related to that? It's like it, it does seem that it's overridden the cold calculus of U.S. imperialism and that the policies have been stupid and actually disastrous from an imper just from a if you're an evil imperialist and you want to be as good an evil imperialist as you can. These were stupid policies. Yeah. And maybe Israel has been more of an overriding element in this constellation of forces that's driven you, us to this point. You you prompt me to share a question that is very current in this wonderful household where we're staying at the moment. Um, does is does does America control Israel? You can imagine what we're talking about this. Can America stop the war? Does America I'm asking both of you, does does America control Israel does, or does Israel control America? And my answer to date is I'm not sure it makes a difference, you know, uh, or, you know, it's, it's uh, how, many, how many Zionists can you fit on the head of a pin or something? I mean, it, it doesn't matter. One way. The, yeah. the distinction is almost artificial, you know. Um, yeah, like if we consider what the American, you know, deep political system is, uh, we can see it as a conglomeration of like interests, uh, corporate interests, uh, ideological interests, political interests, all, all that stuff, you know, and it sits on top of a, you know, public electoral system, all that stuff. But that those interests include some of the same people that run Israel's country, that run Israel's deep political system. Um, that had that share interest there. I mean, sometimes they're sitting on the same boards of the same companies. Sometimes it goes so far as it's the same people, like the same actual individuals. And so saying which one controls the other, I mean, just on a pure power uh, uh, power analysis, America has more powerful than, it, it, than Israel. Israel cannot exist in the way that it is without the American... Yeah, but Bryce, it's it's like a Zen koan. Uh, America is much more powerful, but who controls America? Yeah, exactly, and I, that, that's what gets to the, the the question of like who is who holds the most sway within that deep political system within both deep political systems, and it seems that Israel and its interests have managed to gain a significant foothold within the American deep political system, just as a as a matter of course, just as a matter of who uh, you know? Who has the the money? Who has the influence? Who has been there for a long time? Uh, who has the offices uh, right next to you know the important people? And historically, that answer has been uh, Israel and its lobby. And yeah, uh, Alan McLeod, who does excellent work. I, I don't know him personally. He writes for something called Mint Press News. He's a, he's a great guy. I know him. We, yeah. We've had him on the show here before. Oh, have you? Uh, yeah. Well, you tell him I greatly admire his work. He's consistently excellent. He came out with a piece just the other day. Who are the, who are the political figures who have taken the most money from Israel since, I don't know what his time frame was, Biden was number one yeah. for plus million dollars, four million plus dollars, right? So, yeah. yeah, and like that, that, that's how you control the political. Like it's just, it, it's, <coughs> it's deeper than some other lobbies. Like you can compare it to, uh, you know, like big tobacco who can uh, purchase scientists and manufacture fake science as propaganda. 
and they can yeah. buy uh, politicians to vote for the bills that they want. You know, Israel has all that, but they also have this messianic hold on, you know, you know the, the Christian right. And they mm-hmm. also have this hold on, uh, you know, some sector of a uh, young Jewish community that, that goes beyond the hard nose. Uh, you know, it, it goes beyond just business because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the I- Israel as being you know part of the American empire, but Israel and its position within the American empire also makes it more difficult to run the empire. It's yeah. hard to run, uh, you know, the Middle East. It's harder to run the puppet governments over there if you're also, with the other hand, supporting one of the most hated entities in that region. Uh, yeah. It's it's, so hard, it's hard. One to of, do I mean, not one of. Yeah, yeah. I guess the, the single most hated entity, challenged in champion of being hated over in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that part, that aspect of uh, of. The, the power that it, the fact that it has so much influence over individuals when i i have a friend who was in bloomington and he worked for a congressman there uh years ago and he said that as a on his congressional staff the days that the congressman would have to get visited and talked to by the by the representatives of the israel lobby that his boss the congressman was so demoralized and defeated looking uh, that he would just have to sit there and say like yes yes sir uh and so on and that it was just understood that like you know you have uh, your power in america you have many bosses if you're powerful and that seemed to be the case there and how does that play out in colleges where you have uh, people persecuted if they criticize israel uh, high schools public high schools um private high schools especially private high schools are are terrified of this because of donors and everything else and it gets into like it happens so often that there's no pretending that it's not happening. So yeah. how is it that there's so many donors across the the world that are so committed on this issue? It, it is it's a difficult thing to approach because you're really saying, I mean, you're talking about a very wealthy and politically mobilized group of people that seem to be ready to bring their weight to bear uh, on any institution where there's uh, they just are playing whack-a-mole to, with any institution yeah. that criticizes yeah. Uh, yeah. israel's behavior i mean it, i i think uh, the the gaza crisis has has tipped the apac phenomenon over into an open first amendment question it's now right out there it uh for everyone to see, you know, uh, uh, and I, I, again, going back to the universities, we now have hedge fund managers and so on, uh, purporting to tell universities how to run themselves. What craziness is this? You know, this is what I meant earlier when I was just discussing, uh, the destruction of our university system. You have Wall Street people telling universities what they can do and not do. It's the beginning of the end, you know? Uh, um, Right. Mm -hmm. So, Patrick, I would like to give you a chance to tell people where they can find your your book and uh, you can talk about uh, your Substack as well. So why don't you tell people uh, where they can uh, find your the the work you put out, which is I recommend You're, you're a great writer and people should read your work. Well, very kind of you, Aaron. Uh, Aaron, uh, I'll mention to your listeners, was very kind to offer an endorsement of the book that's now on the screen. Um, That started as an essay for a quarterly journal and grew into a book. Uh, 
Um, it's uh, you can get it from the publisher directly. A, a really good bunch of people. It's called Clarity Press, um, and they're pretty good about shipping and all that. Uh, or you can get it on Amazon. Those are the two places I know. It's it's just out this past autumn. Um, I'm delighted that Aaron's given me a chance to mention it. And apart from that, um, uh, you can find me at The Flautist. That's my Substack newsletter. Uh, I publish regularly at Consortium News and uh, Shearpost. Uh, those are my two. Those are the two publications that uh, give me space on a regular basis. So uh, Shearpost, Consortium News, uh, the flautist, uh, I'm around, um, and uh, thank you for the time here, Aaron. I won't take up more of it. Well, it's been it's been our pleasure, and we will put links to those in the show notes. So, uh, Patrick Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for a great time. pleasure. And Bryce, nice to meet you. Uh, have a good Christmas, both of you. Thank you. You too. You too. Okay. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please visit fordietrying.com and buy the prologue now on Amazon. Check the show notes for links to Patrick Lawrence's Substack and to his book, Journalists and Their Shadows. And please do subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon for first access to all Devil's Chess Club episodes and for all new and past episodes of the American Exception podcast. I'm grateful to Patrick for appearing on such short notice here. It's fortifying to discuss these things with him, and I'm also happy that we could reflect on the seminal work of Chalmers Johnson. I do disagree with some aspects of Johnson's work, but on the whole, we can't diminish the fact that he was alone among established political scientists in looking at the political elephant in the world historic room. I'm talking about the U.S. empire, of course. Today, by and large, Chalmers Johnson's predictions are coming true. Nemesis has arrived. The empire will reign forever until it won't. Afghanistan, Ukraine, Palestine, Nord Stream, NATO, the EU, it's all falling apart. This was inevitable once the US embarked on its global dominance quest. Somehow, humanity needs to stop playing the game. No one wins forever on the devil's chessboard, except Satan. <laughs>